Hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30. As always, I am your host, Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis, the journal that brings you Memphis stories, ideas, and connections. Uh, My guest today, you will know his name, um, but I'm going to start out by reading a quote of his from from just a few weeks ago. Quote, (laughs) the business of local journalism has taken some tremendous hits. There are the 1,800 local newspapers that have closed, nearly 50% reduction in the number of working journalists, and a seemingly constant cycle of newspaper consolidation and subsequent cutting of staff. It's a brutal time for journalism, especially at local newspapers, end quote. That is a quote from my guest today uh, from the Daily Memphian from just a few weeks ago, his editorial. Uh, He is an author, and he's the publisher and CEO of the Daily Memphian, Eric Barnes. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. So you guys are now a year in what? A couple of weeks. Two, three weeks? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. So happy belated birthday. Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we and um, Storyboard Memphis and the Daily Memphian share the, our birthday month. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I like to brag that I, I got you guys by about two weeks. So I, I hit, <laughs> the paper hit the streets about two yeah. weeks before, yeah. before you yes. all did. But I want to go back to kind of, and you talked about this, um, you've talked about it in a couple of your podcasts, and I, I, t- in doing some homework for the, for the show, I revisited those. You went back and revisited kind of the roots of where the Daily Memphian came from and the idea of it. And it really started with the kind of the slow demise of the commercial appeal. And one of the catalysts seemed to be the sale of the commercial appeal to Gannett. Yeah, so talk about some of the conversations you and Andy Cates, and we should specify Andy Cates is is the- Andy is Andy is my friend. He's the board chair. Um, you know, when we launched, we would joke that we were co CEOs of the Daily Memphian. He's he's a very active, thankfully, uh, board chair now. But he's so yeah, that's Andy, and a longtime friend of mine, twenty something years. And, and yeah. as you referenced, we did a podcast recently, kind of looking back on the origins and trying to remember because some of it gets murky. I mean, even yeah. before we started today, I, I'm I'm confused about certain dates, but. Yeah. But the narrative and the timeline is very much that scripts like, you know, when it owned the, the longtime owner of the commercial appeal was doing cuts, all the national, all the papers around the country were doing cuts uh, over the course of the mid to 2000s up to the recession and then post recession. And, you know, again, it was only what, 15 years ago that the CA had over 200 people in its newsroom yeah. and now has locally about 33 plus whatever it shares across the the corporation. I mean, that's a huge cut. And, and, but it was Gannett coming in. And I want to be really clear too, that I'm talking about Gannett. There are really good people at the commercial appeal. Mark Russell, the editor there is a really, is a, a, a top notch journalist. And there are many good journalists over there. So I, I, I always hate when I, it's hard, it's impossible not to talk about the daily Memphian, particularly in its birthday and its origin without talking about the commercial appeal. But really our focus is Gannett and and other could have been somebody else. It could have been a different. It could have been Gatehouse. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it'll be Gatehouse. Right, and right. The cutting that Gannett put in place, and then especially the regionalization, that notion of the Tennessee network, what had been a kind of slowly brewing idea and a, a thing that Andy and I were tossing around, and he was exploring, and I was kind of exploring, but more loosely, became real once that Tennessee network launched. Right. And the reaction people had to it. I do the same thing when I talk about storyboard is I hate to pick on the commercial appeal because, you know, and you're exactly right. You're not talking about the commercial appeal as the the institution that it's been for, you know, 150 some odd years. We're talking about a, a bigger corporation. But it really wasn't just that. It was it was also, 
you know, in, in your conversation, again, referencing the, the podcast in your, in your conversation yeah. with Andy, is more about seeing some gaps in news coverage locally and also the journalists from the Commercial Appeal sharing some insider news, you know, with all of you about what was going on at the paper – that was actually insider. It yeah. just was clear. I mean, it was sort of outsider. It was it was uh, so yeah, obvious what yeah. was happening. I mean, everybody was talking about it. And I'm you know I've been in media here in Memphis for twenty something years, one way or another. And so you know, friends and casual acquaintances, and I mean, just it was clear. They, there were cuts and more cuts coming. Really, the, the the frustrations that the people over there felt, particularly at that time, the, it was the same. It was there was no. It was the same thing that most readers felt, which was why do we have stories about Nashville? rooftop bars on the front page? Why do we have crime stories from Knoxville on the front page? Why is that? Why are the deadlines getting moved and moved and moved up, up, up so that the, the print edition is less relevant? It wasn't. And, and I think their beef and their frustration, and I, I, we, I've done a number of podcasts and, you know, talking to people with the one year anniversary, they're all quick to say, look, I mean, there are great people over there. And, and I had a great experience and I had great memories the corporate takeover of it was was what was the final blow. My personal opinion, and this this opinion I think is shared by many people, obviously, is that what the Daily Memphis is doing is critical. It is truly critical. Well, thank you. And, and it's we like it, to think so. It's critical in the sense that we look at look at you know, the raw numbers, for example, of where you know commercial appeal used to have three three hundred plus thousand on a Sunday. Yeah, I think maybe even daily. Yeah, right. And, you know, so you're reaching that many people and arguably with that, that many copies of the paper going out on a Sunday with the number of readers, you, you're, you can argue that the commercial play used to reach just about every Memphian, you know, and then in the year since it's been cut down to what, 30, 40, 50,000 subscribers. I think it's 30. I think yeah. it's last audit I heard about or I saw actually uh, was 30,000 daily, 33,000 daily and something like 60. Yeah. On Sunday, and that's about a year old. So, in launching the the Daily Memphian, again, the genesis of this goes back two and a half, three years, perhaps. Three years, really. Yeah. yeah. Jeff Calkins reminded me on another podcast I did as part of the that I had talked to him. I think it was three years ago. Mm-hmm. I had lunch with him after a big round of cuts, and Jeff and I were not close, but we knew each other, just had known each other forever. And I bought him lunch, and I remembered it as I bought him lunch, just to kind of I felt bad, and I kind of wanted to talk or commiserate or something. He said, no, you had an agenda. <laughs> you actually were talking about doing something. Uh-huh. And I, I do remember that now, I, I, but I, I forgot it was even that lunch that long ago that, that Andy and I had been talking and other people have been talking about doing something. Another thing that uh, you all talk a little bit about in your podcast as well and is the model, the business model. Yeah. The Commercial Appeal, New York Times, Washington Post, all the big newspapers of your are you know, for profit. With reliance on traditional advertising, with classified ads, talk about your decision, those, those conversations that you had knowing right. that in terms of a business model, nonprofit was the only thing that was, was going to work. We really – we were wary of going the nonprofit route because nonprofit – and I'm, it's been reinforced in the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. And, and it's actually when we market the Daily Memphian and, and we sell and we look for subscription, we rarely mention or promote that we're a nonprofit. Other nonprofit news organizations really push that. You know, I think of Marketplace, American Public Media, or you think of NPR, or you think right. of you know, all kinds of things that really push that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I'm not criticizing that. What, for us, what we were worried about was 
as an unknown brand launching into the middle of this, if we call ourselves a nonprofit, it confuses people. Some people think of a nonprofit as a pure charity. Some people think of it as really almost a government agency, yeah. that it's part of government because it's, it's not paying taxes. They'll think of it as advocacy. And there are a lot of advocacy nonprofits. There are a lot of advocacy journalistic nonprofits out there. There are niche ones. You know, Chalkbeat does education coverage. They're a nonprofit and that they're in a niche. So there were all these reasons we didn't want to do that. The other thing is we didn't want to be donation, forever donation-based. So I always use the example. I'm on the board of the Overton Park Conservancy. The park is a free and open park by definition, by mission. It will always have to fundraise on some level because our mission is to – the park's mission is to let people in there and have a great experience. Mm -hmm. A little bit of revenue we can make off rentals and that kind of stuff. We looked at it and said, look, we can – people have paid for journalism for forever, for 100, 200 years. They bought newspapers and and they've paid for it. So why, why wouldn't we continue that? To charge people who can afford it for a subscription. And reinforce the value through that process and take the burden off the fundraising. We can generate good traffic against which we could sell advertising and sponsorships. And why not do that? And and we feel real confident that by the fifth year, maybe the fourth year, but the fifth year will be sustainable. We'll be paying as we go for the newsroom and all the operations based off those subscriptions and sponsorship revenue. And we didn't want to emphasize the, the nonprofit status because we didn't want people all those reasons. We didn't want people thinking, no, we're not out here really trying to, to, to make a go of it in terms of generating revenue. What we finally got to is, I mean, I did all these. There's a, Andy and I joke all the time about the number of spreadsheets, sort of the big models and yeah, projections yeah. and performers. And we've done 40 or 50 of them. You know, I had one that was basically a for-profit model that threw off, you know, a return on investment. So we, we, you know, we've said we raised close to $7 million. So how would you, how, if you're going to get that as investment, how would you pay some kind of reasonable return on investment? So I do a model and we, you know, it's a 10% return and Andy and I are looking at it and he goes, well, okay. I mean, this kind of makes sense. He goes, but is this, can you do this? And mm-hmm. I pause and I said, well, you know, Andy, I can make a spreadsheet, say anything. And we sort of <laughs> laughed. And, uh-huh. and that's, that was kind of the moment I said, look, I don't think we can. I mean, uh-huh. I think we can get to sustainability, yeah. but if somebody wants to invest $7 million right now in a startup, probably don't want to do it in journalism. It's just too rough a business. You know, you, um, you mentioned NPR, you know, you think about what NPR does, especially what they have evolved into from strictly national public radio to what they are now. And it's that's actually, I think, a pretty appropriate model if you remove the federally funded part of it. and Which they will be quick to say is a tiny part of what they – of their budget. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. But it's, it's the same kind of thing where it's, it's a news organization, but it's, but it's special interests. It's, it's interview programs. It's podcasts. Very similar. And as a any kind of – any kind of publication nowadays has to be diverse. Right. I mean, I know storyboard. I know. I knew. I was never, no way, ever going to survive on print alone. That I was going to have to continue to diversify and continue to have to expand the digital pr- footprint. Have podcast. Have some video content at some point. All those things. So you know, I, I think you know when you mention NPR, it actually, I think it's a pretty appropriate model, and especially nationwide with all the publications, more and more publications moving into the nonprofit sector. It's really something to say when you talk about the fact that already the Daily Memphian is what, maybe the largest or one of the largest nonprofit we're, we're probably we're, – we're one of the largest – I mean potentially the largest and, and we stand ready to be c- corrected – local 
news startup uh-huh. in the country. Mm-hmm. We didn't mean to be. That was not our goal. It just we looked around and it, it, let me back up on, on the, the size and, and the scale of what we did, which is at this point a newsroom almost at 40 plus another 10 people. So we're almost you know 50 plus a lot of freelancers. 70, I mean, it, the scale of what we did was intentional in the sense that we didn't want to ramp up slowly. And, and we were fortunate that we were able to be able to, to launch so big. Mm-hmm. So then we looked around and thought, well, wait, nobody else has launched that big. They've launched small and grown. The other thing is, we're, as best we know, the largest uh, budget, you know, the largest nonprofit news organization is Texas Tribune. Yeah. They're a statewide. They do a whole range of stuff, really good stuff based out of Austin. They're about eight years old, and they've gotten up to, I think they're a $10 million budget. Mm-hmm. Chalkbeat is a national education nonprofit at, you know, news source with bureaus in 14, 10, 10 to 14 states and their cities, and they're right, about right. to add another five to 10 or something. Yeah. They're including in Memphis and um, in Tennessee, but really they're focused in Memphis. They have a bigger, I believe they have a bigger annual budget than us. So, but as terms of a purely local nonprofit news source, yeah. I think we are the largest, which was not really, again, not the intention to, oh, we're the largest, so we win. It just kind of – that's what it took. Yeah. Getting back to why are we a nonprofit, it just takes a lot of money. I mean some days all I think about the stories we don't get to. Yeah. And I am reminded of that some days all day long yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by people yeah. who see me. If you're just joining us, this is Mark Fleischer, your host of Storyboard 30 on WIPL FM 89.3. We're sitting down today with Eric Barnes who is the publisher and CEO of The Daily Memphian. How difficult was it when you realized <laughs> when it came to realistic numbers – yeah. How difficult was it to swallow the fact that you likely could not handle print in terms of the business model? <laughs> I, I I get asked this a lot, and yeah. and people who come up and say, you know, are nice enough to come up and say, hey, I like what you're doing, but boy, I wish there was a print edition, and I wish there was a print edition. Mm-hmm. But you know as well as I do, and you and I have talked about this before in many a coffee shop, mm-hmm. um, that it's just so dang expensive. Yeah. So we looked at well, we're not going to do daily. Because that was just off the charts expensive. But could we do maybe a, a weekly edition? And yeah. so, again, in that, that 40-something models, financial models that Andy and I put together, I, I, he said, let's, let's look. And so I kind of went off in my space. So, uh, and I, you know, some hours or a day later, something like that, I said, all right, take a look. And he, again, it was one of those things where he goes, okay, well, you can take that back out. And, and he goes, wait, <laughs> now that was just a weekly edition at like maybe 40, 50,000 copies? I said, yeah, 40, 50,000 copies. He goes, whoa. And part of the problem is that at scale, the the print advertisers, too many print advertisers said print don't work. And it doesn't matter what the studies show, uh-huh. that it is effective, that people do read it, that it, it's an effective medium, that it, what you have to charge for 50,000 copies right. of a weekly edition yeah. to cover that expense of printing and distribution it, it, the advertisers just are, you know, particularly young. I mean, I hate to be ageist now that I'm 51. I guess I can do this, but the younger marketing people are just like, no, we don't, we don't do print. Oh yeah, we just, we just don't. And you feel this. You've oh, got yeah. a really nice, very local, and I mean that in a good way, advertising base. I know, I'm sure none of it's easy. It, selling is never easy. Right. But it, it's tough to get out there and and get those ads. Oh, it's really tough, and. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about early during this conversation is the old print, the old, you know, for-profit print models relied on classified ads. And, you know, people tend to forget that there are no classified ads virtually anymore. Right. Um, they're all, you know, Craigslist has taken taken over that market. Um, uh, obituaries uh, were once paid for. 
right? right. And I don't know. If Commercial Appeal still charges for its okay. obituaries. Um, we do not. We have obituaries online. But you know, obituaries is a good, a, a really interesting example of how newspapers, and I'm not picking on Commercial Appeal. This is basically every local newspaper. Yeah lost their way, that, that they, they ceded all of their revenue streams to other entities. So yeah. they did – so Legacy.com is a service that we use. I'm, I'm 99% sure the – yeah, the CA uses it as well. Right. They control probably 80 to 85% of the, class, of the obituaries in this country. Mm-hmm. And they – newspapers just kind of watched it happen in mm-hmm. some way and, and I think had a kind of entitled mentality across the industry. Oh, well, that will never happen. That will never happen. Yeah. Oh, this Craigslist is a fad. We've always had classifieds. Right. You know, and I can remember having – I mean people of a certain age would be blown away by this. But I can remember buying classified ads – Hiring, you know, employment ads that were mm-hmm. maybe two or three inches long, and spending seven, eight hundred dollars oh, on yeah. those to get them into the Sunday edition. And I think th- that obituaries still can be in some communities. I'm not sure what they are in the commercial appeal, but printed obituaries can be, you know, five hundred, a thousand dollars. But you've got alternatives like us who are free. And I'm not selling that. I'm just saying it's it's newspapers have have lost their way in a lot of their traditional revenue streams. Including then, you know, once they went online for what a decade, most local newspapers, sometimes 15 years, were free online. They gave away their content, gave everyone a reason to unsubscribe from their one of their core revenue streams. Somebody, I'm sure, somewhere would do an amazing business MBA PhD study on all the bad decisions that newspapers as a whole made over the last 15 years. Yeah, it's kind of like the person who said the internet should be free. And and then as a result, every piece yeah. of content on the internet should be right. free, including journalism. And, yeah. it, and the only people who made money off that in the end were Google and Facebook. Yeah. And now to some degree, you know, and it's great that the New York Times and Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and some of the national publications are starting to really hit – Num- meaningful numbers of subscribers and meaningful monthly and annual subscriber rates. But at a local level, very, very few people have figured it out. Yeah. I had Anna Travers on uh, yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. 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 And we were we were talking about the same, the, the same issues with regard yeah. to the challenges in print advertising and how, you know, Facebook, Google ads take so much of the revenue and a huge chunk of the revenue. We also talked about the Kroger decision. So for people that know, Kroger has ended free distribution in its all its stores nationwide. All right? its stores nationwide. And, and here we are. It's Election Day, October 3rd, as we record this. Here in the next week or two, those racks will be gone. Yeah. You know, so all of us are kind of scrambling. Uh, you know, all the, all the free publications are we're kind of scrambling to figure out where are we going to yeah. either double up on our on our distribution, find other distribution spots, and so on and so on. Knock on wood, thankfully, storyboard. I've, I've got a lot of places I can now make an excuse to go into where I you know, didn't before. But I think about the Daily Memphian, and you've got a different set of distribution challenges, right? Yes. So, so it's not, you know, for example, going back to the Daily News, you had, you had, you had the free pickup. We had the edition. Memphis. We had the Memphis News was our free weekly, and then a paid, which we we pulled out of Shelby County when the Daily Memphian launched. We still the Daily News, and it's confusing because I I actually run both. They are not affiliated in any way, but I, it's just kind of the way things worked out. And yeah, so that is still a paid paper with some amount of free distribution. So talk about. I think you you'd said that uh, in terms of your subscription numbers since you launched, you have exceeded your projections that you've you've said and your subscribers you don't have to share the numbers if you don't want to it doesn't matter but in terms of distribution since there are now 
news deserts that don't have access or now are going to have more difficulty getting access to print news, obviously the objective is to make sure they get, they're getting to the Daily Memphian because, as I said, I, I do believe, and I, I share this opinion with many people, that what you're doing is truly critical to you know, yeah. a local democracy. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. No, I, th- we th- I think we believe that. Uh, so talk about some of the things you all are trying to do to get yeah. – to increase your access to, to you know, yeah. so, divested communities and so on. From day one, we realized we wanted to be sustainable financially. We didn't want to fundraise. But we also knew you know, we've got to find ways to get access to people who can't or shouldn't afford it. Yeah. So we you – know, the libraries were pretty easy and we yeah. got that up right away. We, we are behind on doing this and it's – I'm in the midst of trying to hire somebody to run – I mean bluntly to run this whole free and community subscription program. But the gist of it is we're now in all the Shelby County schools free on their, their network, their Wi-Fi, their, their, their wired networks. We're free in some other schools and any school that out there that isn't, doesn't have free access, they are welcome to email me. It's on the site. It's barnes at dailymemphian.com. Mm-hmm. And we can pretty quickly turn it on. So we can turn on free access to a building very, very easily. It takes 15 minutes assuming the, the, that building or that facility has a relatively unified network. It's just the IP address you turn it on. We're in the midst of getting all the schools. We've got the bulk of them, but they're charter schools and some of the other ones that we just haven't gotten to. And we said we would give free access to everyone, you know, pre-K through 12, not the universities. We're, we're trying to work sort of education programs with them. And then we want to move into, you know, things like affordable housing complexes or, you know, senior living facilities that are people who are, you know, moderate or lower income. Mm-hmm. People, again, who maybe can. And the teacher thing, it's not the teachers that necessarily can't afford a $7 a month subscription, but we made a decision. Now, that's a part of the community. Teachers do great work. They're undervalued and underpaid anyway. We'll make that free. And then yeah. also with the kids and educational opportunities. So we want to begin over the course of this next year. It's one of my highest goals is to to really expand free access to places that can't or shouldn't work with people who can't or shouldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And it's very tricky. Again, buildings and locations with networks are relatively easy. Giving someone mobile access is an incredibly difficult administrative and qualification challenge. How do, how do I qualify that person that you can't or shouldn't afford it on a one-by-one basis? Right, so right. year two is about finding facilities and places and, and buildings and gathering points that, hey, that should be free and that makes sense. Year three will be, all right, how do we get to an individual level? And that's, that's very complicated. Privacy issues, I mean, it's very complicated. Yeah. One of the things that I think that a friend of mine pointed out who was very smart about these things said, you know, if you could figure out a way to identify families on the free lunch programs in the school, mm-hmm. then you basically said that's, those families are qualified. We don't need that. I mean, we're not going to have people submit their IRS, you know, their tax returns and pay stubs yeah. to get a free act. That's ridiculous on a bunch of levels, insulting and ridiculous and so on. But if you could somehow figure a way to latch on to the, or the, some programs like that, free lunch being one, that's something I think in somewhere into year two, but into year three, we'll begin to look at. Talking about the newsroom itself. The old days of the newspaper, you had strict deadlines. The story had to be in by a certain time in order for it to get to presses in a timely manner get out there. In the digital world, when you think about the newsroom and you think about each each individual journalist, how has their lives changed from what you've seen over the last, let's say, 15 years? 
How has that changed? How, do, how does that look different nowadays? It, it's very different. It's a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and you can go to pre- – I mean I could right here on my phone publish a story to the front page of the Daily Memphian. I shouldn't and I won't. Right. But I could. <laughs> you know. And so there's an immediacy to it that you can take advantage of and there's a speed of publishing that's nice. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an approach like you, know, like you said, we're, we're recording on election day. So some of the stories that will go up today will just get constantly updated. It'll be mm-hmm. just you know, come back for updates. And that's a nice thing. It's also a nice thing when you make a mistake because we do make mistakes that you can go in and fix them in real time. You can bring in other media, and that's a really nice thing. So you can bring in video. You can bring in podcasts. You can reference the library's voter guide in an article about the election, for instance, or the, the you know, Shelby Vote, the election commission site where, the, you know, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of great stuff where you can pull other resources in that in the past you as the publisher of a printed edition would have to do yourself. One of the, the risks, and you see this in lots of publications, you see it on us sometimes. I mean, we make mistakes. The speed of publishing online is so, it is so fast and you kind of are flying without a net. I mean, we have, we, we have these interns in from U of M and they're great, three interns and, and great on a million levels. But our training broke down and the, the, one of the interns published a, a draft of a story to the site just – and somebody noticed. It was, it was buried <laughs> in a section. It was not you know, in the top spot, but uh-huh. it was – it was out there. It was like, whoa, whoa. And she didn't know. And it wasn't really her fault. Our training had broken down. At some level, it's riskier. You know, in the old yeah. days, you couldn't, it'd be hard to get a story into print, to sneak it into print and sneak it onto the press and sneak it out to the, the boxes and people's home delivery. And you also see a lot of errors. I mean, I read, I read Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times every day in mm-hmm. some fashion. Mm-hmm. And you see t- errors, I mean, really blatant bad typos in those publications on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. I see them all the time. And, and it's yeah. probably the speed of publishing. Mm-hmm. Our process, and actually, I was just at a, Pointer Institute, uh, which is one of the big think tanks me- on media, local media especially, mm-hmm. and talking to some other papers and publications and media companies. Some people do really quick publishing and just live with the ramifications and try to clean up after. You'd be surprised. I mean, we, we move towards a, a 4 a.m. deadline. People who A lot of people rely on these 4 a.m. morning edition emails we sent out mm-hmm. and this evening edition that goes out at 4 p.m. That sets a rhythm to the day, which I think is sometimes, sometimes a little limiting and sometimes helpful because it yeah. gives us some structure. And we try to run stories, maybe to a fault, through multiple editors before they go online. You know, we may shorten that up some over time and and have more immediate stories going up. But there's still a room for editors. There's still everyone needs a copy editor. I need yeah. a proofreader. I mean, I had a typo today or yesterday in a, a little column I wrote, and you know, I, I had the person referenced had to correct me, and I had yeah. to fix it. I think it has changed dramatically, and the immediacy of it is wild. But there's some risks with that. How in, in today's world, in you know, because arguably in publishing, we're competing with Google and especially right. with Facebook. How important is it that these stories are turned around quickly and out there quickly? But it or, is important. Or is, or is there a gestation period? Well, or it depends. You know. you know, sometimes it depends on the story. I mean, you know, we did a big what three four part series in conjunction with the U of M. Uh, uh, what what is there uh, Institute for Public Service Journalism, where they're we're partnered with them and they yeah, do we'll investigate. Mark Persky and David Waters are over there doing investigative and deep dive journalism, enterprise journalism. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah. And so that that took months of work and needed to not be rushed. Yeah. Other things, the Andrew Gudal, if you're a basketball fan, you know, said some bad things about Memphis. That story needed to go up right away. You yeah. know, as quickly as possible. 
and it blew out traffic blew up and we got retweeted and relisted on ESPN and a bunch of other sp- national sports <laughs> sites and literally I mean it's the big it's this, some of the biggest traffic we've ever had was off that quick hit turnaround story that Chris Harrington was able to get up first you know yeah. and that's important it was not the deepest story and I don't mean that as a criticism it was just, it was a quick hit story that we then followed up on and filled in some blanks and gave some context to so you've got to be immediate but you can't I think if you get it's a balancing act if you get hooked on that if you just have sort of drive by readers who just are coming to you for immediacy well the truth is that they may not subscribe and they may not pay and so you know we yeah. can look at things in the industry now with more and more analytics you can know way too much about your stories and how they're doing it's it's kind of maddening right. and insane but a a really quick hit high traffic story that blows up on twitter or facebook often will do a far fewer paid subscriptions mm-hmm. than a story, a thoughtful, deeper story that had a fraction of the traffic. But we can go in there and see we converted more paid subscribers and our, our existing paying subscribers stayed on those stories longer, read more of them, engaged with them more than these kind of quick hit stories. And so that's constant. That's the constant balancing act. I want to uh, – on that note, I want to talk about um, the journalists themselves because – I think, you know, listeners of the show might be interested to know how the, the level of professionalism, the level of talent yeah. of, of the, journalist, the journalists you have, you know, in, in the newsroom who can report on a story, take their notes, uh, get their quotes, and have the story, you know, published onto the site mm-hmm. within hours. It's Tom Bailey, Jane Roberts, uh, just just to name a couple a couple of the ones that I've worked with more recently. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, um, it's it's amazing to me. It's amazing, and I you know I've been a reporter. I was a reporter, you know, for not a lot a long time, and partly because <laughs> my ability to do that. I mean, it's stress. I mean, just talking about it makes my palms sweat. I mean, it, yeah. I would be because we were. I was at a, a little. Biweekly, it was a twice a week paper in a little small town in Connecticut, and you know I'd be in the the newsroom on deadlines till midnight, one o'clock, running around, thinking, making notes, getting <laughs> some coffee, you know, uh-huh. screwing around, and to watch professionals like that, and and our newsroom is filled with them. Mm-hmm. You named two really good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing how quickly they can turn around and how clean their copy is, and and how accurate it is, and and it's just it's something else, and it's it is not for everyone. I mean, I think there are lots of of um, you know, long form writers who can't do the short form and vice versa. And, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, that and that also kind of shaped the newsroom in the sense that we we found this mix of of veterans, Tom and, and Jane being two of them and many others. But also these I jokingly call them kids. But I mean, you know, they're 20 somethings out of more recently out of, of of journalism school who can do that as well mm-hmm. and and have but also have a different, different perspective just because you're younger, you're. I mean, everybody brings their own perspective to any given story. They're, yeah. you know, they're they're black or white or Hispanic or they're male or female, young, old, all those things. So we, it's great to see. And I talked about these three interns who are in, as they get up to speed on on this kind of quick turnaround, and the sort of discipline it takes to get that done. It, yeah. It's pretty remarkable. Oh, it, it's truly remarkable, and it's um, really actually very marvelous. Is is a word I think of. It's I marvel at you know that yeah. that that. Efficiency. Um, being that the commercial appeal is, you know, le- our legacy paper um, and our paper of record, really, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
have you all talked about you start thinking about the longer term because when you, you I, I feel like the writing is on the wall when it comes to what Gannett or Gatehouse might do, and there's no telling in the next few years what might happen with our local commercial appeal. Um, when you when you look at the longer term, do you ever have discussions about? I dare say it, but you know, replacing the current paper of record. I mean, uh, that happens often. You know, we go back to pressimeter and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean. I, I, no, I, I'm not focused on that. I'm mm-hmm. focused on, if, you know, we do the best possible work we can do yeah. and focus our resources in the most efficient way, which most days we do and some days we don't. Yeah. Um, and and adding people, I mean, I said in one of those columns I recently did, I mean, we're about to add a couple more people. And yeah. so I, I think we are, um, we're focused on that. Um, and and then the what whatever place we play in Memphis and in, in terms of paper of record or all that, that, that is... That will come as it comes. That, yeah, you know? I was going to say so, that's almost you know, not yeah, your decision. Right, yeah, it just right. happened. I mean, yeah. I think you you get to the point um, where I mean, I get lots of people come and say, "Well, I still subscribe to the commercial appeal, and because I, I like the printed edition, or they have certain things that that, that you don't." And I get that. That's fine. I mean, we mm-hmm. we aren't all things to all people yet. I mean, yeah. and we may never be. Right. We, you know, it's it takes like I said, the commercial appeal had two hundred people, and I've talked to people who were there when they had two hundred people, and they were still didn't have enough people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. They are going through another um, ownership change. I feel really bad for a lot of the people involved. Yeah, it, yeah. The Gatehouse has said, you know, the Gatehouse Gannett have they've said that they're they've been spongy about um, what's going to happen in the newsrooms. But I mean, the truth is that, and the CA uh, Gannett smartly and rightly and, and to the benefit of Memphis when we launched. They approved replacing in sort of corporate speak all of the positions they that we had taken those mm-hmm. spots mm-hmm. and added something like five or six, mm-hmm. um, and so they understood there was a real threat and a challenge here yeah. in what what is not one of their biggest markets. Yeah, they have made us better, and we I think I think that many of them would say we've made them better. I mean, it, it just competition is a good thing. Yeah. So I like the MBJ. We compete with the MBJ. You mentioned Anna Traverse. We we compete less with the, the Flyer and contemporary media. Right. Magazine, but sometimes we do, yeah. um, and so, and I'm sure I just forgot somebody that we also compete with. But um, it, it, competition is great. Mm-hmm. I really like it, and I would, um, uh, you know, I, I I hope that there isn't another round. I mean, honestly, as a journalist, if somebody's been doing this forever, who does view it as a kind of, um, I mean, a very important thing a very important sort of part of the civic discourse nationally, internationally, and, and locally. Um, I hope there's not another big wave of cutting and regional consolidation. But if you read the business press and media, it seems very – I mean the speculation is there will be more cutting and yeah. more re- back to regionalization. Yeah, and it's too bad because they've really you, – you can see the efforts that they have made over the last six months to a year. You know, yeah, in absolutely. In terms of just – the quality of journalism, more you know, a little bit more investigative journalism. Yeah. Um, it would just it would be really it would not just be unfortunate for the newsrooms there and our newsroom locally, but just Memphis would suffer. Yeah, you know, we we, we yeah. can't get to everything. They can't get to everything. Right, right. And I don't think that it's a kind of zero sum thing where you know if they 
you know, cut 10 people, we'd add 10 people. Yeah. I mean, there are limits to our resources. Right, right. And so, and vice versa. So I, I you know, it, it is good that they're there. And yeah. They've done some, I mean, Mark Russell has done, uh, the editor at the Commercial Appeal has got some really great people that he found and brought in, some that he already had. And El- I mean, Daniel Conley d- has done some really great investigative stuff. Stephanie, I've forgotten her name, but um, last name, because I'm terrible with names. She's done some really good stuff. They they do have really good people. And I'm, I'm glad for Memphis as somebody who loves the city and lives here and always will. Yeah. You mentioned uh, University of Memphis, the Institute for Public Service Reporting. Yes. Um, now, so the uh, listeners who don't know, um, the the work that they're doing is tremendous. Uh, um, David Waters, um, Mark uh, Perskia, if I can get that right, um, in-depth investigative journalism, uh, multi-part series. Yeah. Right? Uh, Partner with U of, U of M, obviously. Tell me about how that how that collaboration there, came about. There are other examples. Um, I think University of Wisconsin, within its journalism school, had started this this investigative unit, and they're kind of they're 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 really uh, modeled around the idea of one. They're a reaction to the cuts at big corporate papers right. on a local level, and they're kind of modeled on a ProPublica, which is a national organization that's mm-hmm. getting more local. Uh, Wendy Thomas with MLK 50 and the CA, they did some stuff with ProPublica on right. the Methodist stories that were really very powerful and really important stories. Um, the So that the, these universities around the country, a handful of them have started these kind of investigative units within the journalism school. Mm-hmm. Then the idea is that, that those those reporters have the resources of the university. So, you know, reporters write about everything but don't know everything. So if you're embedded in a university, you have maybe economists or you have a scientist or, you know, mm-hmm. David Waters did the brain research, you know, series and could kind of on lean trauma. on U of yeah. M, yeah. you know, experts. Yeah, the trauma stuff, which is just so sad and powerful. Um, so it was modeled on that. It, it was, it was again, the, the cuts were coming at the Commercial Appeal. Um, the former editor of the Commercial Appeal, Louis Graham, um, had had the idea of wanting to do this for a while. He had left the Commercial Appeal, mm-hmm. and um, he's the I think the head of their advisory group. I mean, he work he has a full time job elsewhere, but um, I think I can say he's at St Jude. But um, but he's you know he's the advisor over there, and Mark Persky and David, and and they have goals of adding more people, mm-hmm. and we are there exclusive. We have a partnership with them, mm-hmm. or partial funder of them. Um, and we are their exclusive outlet for printed word, um, for lack of a better word, a right. better phrase, right. journalism. Uh, list, listeners, if you have not come across some of these articles, really should check yeah. them out. They're they're tremendous, uh, in depth articles. Uh, one on, as you mentioned, the um, the effects of trauma on young brains, which is David Waters' three part series. A special report by Mark Paraskia on the Union Row development, which was t- tremendous. Um, a couple weeks ago when I was uh, sitting down with Anna Trappers, uh, she was talking about the importance in not just in at the contemporary media, but also in media in general in, in Memphis, is to really strive to diversify yes. and be a true reflection of Memphis. Yeah. Um, when you look at your newsroom – how do you how do you feel like you guys are with with that? We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we you know we got a lot of criticism. Some of it quite fair when mm-hmm. we launched that we had launched so privately that people felt like they'd been excluded from the process, and mm-hmm. that was my one regret. I don't know. I got all kinds of regrets, I guess, but that was a regret. And I said that to the Memphis Association of Black Journalists, and I said that to Wendy Thomas in an interview we did, and that you know I, we were we were we were going so fast. We were talking to lots of African American journalists in town, but. 
the truth was that just black, white, young, old, male, female, the number of people who, who were in Memphis who could do what we needed done because we were going to – we formed on May 1st and we launched in mid-September. It was an insane timeline. Yeah. There just weren't that many and there were a number of African-American journalists who said no to us, which was fine. I mean I would under, you know, they just didn't want to, to take a chance or whatever. I don't know what their reasons were. Yeah. So we launched with a newsroom that was about 20 percent African-American. We're a little better than that now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about the – I think for local um, um, newsrooms – that's about the the standard. And, you know, most cities, 20, 25 percent would be pretty good. Obviously, we're a majority black city. And so yeah. I, I, I so we we but we are about 50 percent female. And that's important. We have been and we've added a number of 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 younger staff, male, female, black and white. Um, and it is absolutely a goal. And it, and I believe, you know, you have to be intentional. You yeah. know, yeah. we have a marketing campaign going on right now, you know, be buses and billboards and other stuff that, right. that in part, I mean, it's no secret in part kind of shows that diversity. I mean, you know, I'm a 50 year old white guy, 51. And, mm. you know, Jeff's on there. And and but right then other room. people, younger people who people won't recognize. I mean, we yeah. do have an, when I walk around our newsroom, it is quite diverse. It does yeah. not fully reflect. Memphis, yeah. but it does reflect a, a more diverse uh, backgrounds than I think sometimes we get credit for because people know Jeff and they know Jennifer Biggs and they, they whatever extent they know me and they, you know, they see Bildries on yeah. the show with me. And so they kind of think of us as older and whiter, but that's right. it's not a fair critique. Again, we have to be more purposeful. I think all three of our interns right now, two women, a male, and they're all people of color. And, and that's um, that's in, very intentional, and mm-hmm. we're unapologetic about that. That we have to be part of that, um, solving that problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, shifting gears a bit to uh, kind of wrap wrap us up. You're uh, you're from Seattle. I'm from Tacoma. Tacoma oh. is uh, Tacoma, Washington. It's about 45 minutes south. It's it's ever longer away from Seattle because traffic around Seattle is so bad. But yeah. it's it's just south of Seattle. Yeah, and you you've been here for how long? 24 years this summer. 24 years this summer. Yeah. Wow. Almost wow. the majority of my life. And yeah. it's very much my home. I mean, I, I uh, fell in love with it and, um, and have, you know, my kids are in college now and, um, and, uh, and I'm single and I'm empty nest. And I had some friends when like my daughter went to college say, well, so are you leaving? And I was like, leaving where? I know. <laughs> Memphis. I said, oh my gosh, no. I mean, it's very much my adopted home. I, I love it here for all its problems. Um, and because everywhere I've lived, I've lived in the East Coast, West Coast, Alaska. I mean, every place has tremendous problems. And yeah. we have our own particular ones around crime and around you know inequality and so on. But um, you know, it's not as if other cities don't. I did a, a show this week that you know the rate of poverty in Nashville is is astounding. You know, we sort of look at our sort of quote sister city and feel jealous and feel like they've got it all right. They're they're a, they like us, unfortunately, are a top ten city in this country for um, for youth poverty. A third of of children in Nashville are living in poverty. I mean, and you think you drive into Nashville and you hear all the stories, and you think, well, that's not possible. Yeah, but, yeah. So I, I anyway, I I love this city and and for all its problems, and it's certainly welcomed me, and and um, it's been great. Yeah, Nash Nashville is is a city that really encountering. I would qualify by saying true gentrification. Yes, we you know, a level of gentrification that is yeah like, <laughs> astounding, astounding. You know, like you know, like like Brooklyn in in you know yep. fifteen twenty years ago. Yes, um, yeah, and we talk about that here, but that's on a different level. It's there, yeah. it's next level. Oh, my friends in Seattle, I have a lot of friends up there, and friends down in Portland, 
I mean, they, it is it is breathtaking what's going on in New York, where I lived for five years. I and I lived in Brooklyn twenty something years ago, twenty mm-hmm. almost thirty years ago now. Um, yeah, the gentrification is just is unbelievable, and so I'm. It, it's one of the things I like about Memphis is that we have these conversations. We talk about race. We talk about poverty. We don't all get along about it, but we talk about. It. I was talking to some people recently about how. Who are very much involved in these kinds of issues and they are around the country involved with it. And they said, you know, they go to other cities and no one's really talking about it. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's yeah. it, Or it's someone else's problem, not the problem. They're, the, it's not the problem of the person that they're talking to. To me, everything I do, the boards I'm on, the companies and organizations I run, it, that's part of what I have to try to embrace mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, of, of poverty and um, you know, racial divides and all those kinds of things. And then a city that actually is starting to, you know, kind of grow and change and have this kind of economic development that it didn't used to have that issues like gentrification remain at the forefront as, as the city changes, it's yeah. got to change for the better for everyone. Yeah. So um, that topic seems like a fascination of yours when I think about your books. Yeah, so we, I am obsessed with that stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is true. Yeah, so in case you listeners don't know, Eric is, a, of course, a, an author. Um, your last book, uh, Above the Ether, was yes. just uh, released within in the last – June? In, yeah, yes, I think it was June. That, yeah, I was going to say June. beginning yeah. of summer. Yeah. So congratulations yeah. on that. Yeah. And, um, and I, have, I have two words for you, uh, uh, Tacoma and forklift. <laughs> yeah. So I, I grew up I grew up in a very blue collar city. Um Tacoma now, it's a very beautiful setting and it's got kind of hipster coffee places. It blows me away every time I'm there. I still have family there and friends. Uh but it was a big blue collar city when I lived there and uh it was a very, very rough place. And uh but I my parents had a little construction company and mm. I drove forklifts after work and I spent a couple summers in Alaska living in a tent. Um, working in fish plants and driving a truck and and um, driving forklifts around and I think I can still drive a forklift. It's been quite it's been quite a while, but um, but I I can still do that. So that was that's kind of where that was my background and um, I think it is still on my bio because people are like, wait, a it fish is, yeah. plant? You were in a tent? You were yeah. driving a forklift? Yeah, you're the guy behind the headlines. That's not possible. <laughs> so. All right, Eric Barnes. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you. Publisher, CEO of The Daily Memphian. Again, thank you for coming in. And for more of this conversation and more Real Talk, please listen to the Storyboard 30 podcast at storyboardmemphis.com. Thank you again to Jeff Hewlett and his fine acoustic guitar work, to producer Vance Durbin, and to WYPL broadcast manager Tommy Warren, to WYPL and the Memphis Public Libraries for their support, and to you listeners and supporters of the library and FM 89.3. We hope you join us next time on Storyboard 30 for more conversation with those Memphis personalities and shapers who make our lives here in the Bluff City just a little bit better. Memphis, make it a great week. Mm-hmm.